Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey friends, uh, welcome to the Tennis and Bagels podcast and um this has been some tournament, right? Like Rolling Garros, uh, a lot of things happen. It's it's even hardest to to start thinking of like where do I start? Like with all this. Um, first off, the facts: Djokovic has not only beaten Nadal uh, on the semifinal, he has also achieved a double career Grand Slam, um, a feat that nobody in in the Open era at least hasn't has achieved, you know, like ever, and. You know, like it's just like tennis history, just like writing itself, like in front of our eyes. Like obviously, like pretty much every time that a, a big three player enters the court, like essentially this this is happening. But I mean, today just has a a bit of a feel of a of an accomplishment, and lots of people are been saying like, yeah, Djokovic is now the undisputable indisputable goat. Um, to which I obviously like have my reservations, not because of the arguments itself, but just because of the actual definition of greatest of all time. But uh, we can discuss that in, in another time because um, we, me and Owen, who is who's here, by the way. Hi, Owen. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks. Yeah. So we did a we did this preview episode about uh, Djokovic Nadal um, semifinal, and we were like 25% right and 75% wrong about what was going to happen. The 75% wrong was like all the three sets that Djokovic won. Uh, <laughs> And uh, yeah, Djokovic didn't lose the match as we were like expecting. Um, the match was very intense and very good. Um, I want to say at least up until the third set, but I feel like the first set wasn't wasn't terrible. It's just like Djokovic ended up being like superior at least physically. Um, and just before we actually get started on this one, um, I know that this probably probably the the the, the listens on this play, on this podcast are gonna drop. Because I'm pretty sure a lot of the Nadal fans are taking a break from social media and probably won't see this episode. But if you actually get to see this, like, uh, I guess I would say, like, just don't worry. Like, your your guy is Djokovic is not better than Nadal and Clay because he beaten him like um, once in 2015, which pretty much doesn't count in the semifinal right now. Um, it is a heck of an achievement, but Nadal is still an undispu- undisputable goal like if i don't have a single uh doubt in my mind that nadal is the greatest player has that has ever lived to play on clay in Roland garros and just this one defeat will not tarnish his record by one bit like if you think of it nadal has like a 173 record in Roland garros that's absurd that's ridiculous and nadal fans you should be proud of your guy for this so um yeah Let's start with it. Like I feel like Owen's itching to speak, so I'll I'll let him uh, have his time. 
Go ahead. Yeah, Adam. I mean, um, thanks. I'm really happy we're doing this episode. Um, this podcast is going to put out like sort of full tournament coverage uh, later as well, but we thought we would set this episode aside to just sort of talk about Djokovic's last two matches of the tournament because they were truly remarkable. And I think for me and a lot of people, the more remarkable one was the first one, which was the semi against Rafa Nadal. And this match was just a joy to watch because... I was going into it expecting them to sort of try to end points quickly. And it actually felt almost like a throwback to some of the matches they played in their primes. Like the rallies weren't that attritional. And while as a whole, I don't think the match was one of the greatest of all time, um, sort of both of them built up and it all culminated in this like 97 minute third set. That was just an absolute masterpiece of tennis. Mm -hmm. Um, The rallies were amazing. It was high drama. Both of them were like clutching out holds at the end of the set. And by the time Djokovic won the tiebreak, he um he basically celebrated more emphatically than he did when he actually won the match. And it felt so fitting because it was just such an intense set. And so I guess first I wanted to talk about that. Like, are there any specific points or moments from that set that you remember really clearly? For me, um uh it I'm just going to set up a little bit of a disclaimer here. One, I I am sort of like a like a Djokovic fan in a way. I, I really like enjoy Rafa Nadal playing. And if he had won, I wouldn't be sad one bit. I would still have watched like Nadal playing Tsitsipas in the final and life would go on. I wouldn't care. But like for me, it's it's hard at the very moment of the match to say that I wasn't extremely nervous when Nadal had set point. Um, and on the... After Djokovic, I believe he served for the set. Yeah, five four. Yeah, so yeah, so he served for the set. Couldn't couldn't hold. Um, even though like he was showing great confidence and he was really comfortable during the entire set. At some point, he was uh, he missed a shot um, that could have led him to like uh, maybe extend his lead. But then he was like smiling because he was in a place where he was like confident enough that he would pro- possibly win the set. And then Nadal came back, <laughs> and then he broke and, and had a set point. Um, on Djokovic's serve at 6-5. Please, Owen, correct me if I'm wrong if I ever say something that isn't exactly exactly as it happened. But like, that was, at that moment, it was like, oh crap, like if Nadal wins this, I don't know if there's a coming back at this point. Like, I mean, if you're looking at us, it's going to roll away with it. And in a way, it kind of matched a bit of the narrative that we both set up, like when we did the preview that like, um, it it was very crucial for Djokovic not to go to five and like not to like let Nadal like grab like uh, any sort of like two set lead on him mm-hmm. because otherwise Nadal was just going to like rise and win because I mean yeah I guess that those set points those those save set points and the absurdly good tie break that happened uh, after that was just. It was just phenomenal. And I was kind of having glimpses of uh, Australian Open to 2012 just because of it was so long and so physical. Yeah. So, yeah, that was definitely like it, it, it was the high point of the match. Like it, after, after that, it was great to see Djokovic winning or, or whatever. Like, I mean, it was sad to see Nadal like not bringing it to a fifth set. I feel like it would have been fantastic. Um, but yeah, the third set is definitely like what we were all in there for, like all of the tennis fans were, were in there for that fifth set. And um, if, if I'm going to say something that is not exactly in the match, but it's, it's something that was very clearly, um, it was interesting to witness. It was the fact that it, it seemed like the entire tennis world was 
watching that match. Like they dropped everything that they were doing to watch it. Like you could see um, all of the tennis players um, retired and active, like tweeting about how ridiculous the quality of that match was. Um, I remember clearly like reading this uh, Diego Schwartzman tweet. He was saying, um, uh, do these guys actually play the same sport as we do, like the other tennis players? And that's how it feels like the, the level that they bring while they're like old uh, like older and like in I'm, i don't even want to say like they're in the twilight of their career but but like they're definitely in the last maybe three or four years in their careers most likely mm-hmm. uh and it was actually refreshing to see such a massively co- high quality match between those two like it definitely feel like i was back in like in 2010 11 <laughs> yeah. So, yeah i mean I think it was definitely at least their best match since Wimbledon 2018. Um, and I don't think it quite lived up to that. But I mean, I agree with everything you said. Um, all the tennis players following it just made it absolutely thrilling. It felt like the entire tennis mm-hmm. world was fixated on that third set as it was happening. And I have to say, um, I think it's always tennis players usually say it's a good feeling to sort of be in the final and be watching the other semi. But if I'm Stefanos Tsitsipas watching that, I am the most terrified man in the world because in the tennis world because I'm seeing that and thinking I cannot do that, you know. Um, yeah. And I think that third set, like, so it started out pretty intensely. Like Nadal had to battle through a tough hold at one all, and then at two all, um, he saved some more break points, but Djokovic broke him. And the exact moment for me that this match t- took to another level was when Djokovic was down break point thirty forty at three two. Mm. And they played a 22-shot rally, 22 strokes after the serve. And Nadal was up in the point. He opened up the court with um, angled cross-court backhand, then an angled cross-court forehand, and then a forehand down the line into the open space. But Djokovic defended and got it back. And then he goes on the attack, uh, pushes Nadal from corner to corner, and then goes behind him with an inside-out forehand winner. And immediately he just starts doing the thing with his arms where he starts pumping up the crowd. And that was the first big reaction from him all match. Mm. And I was just completely spellbound by that rally. I was thinking, oh my God, I didn't know that these two could do this anymore. I thought that phase in their career was sort of over. And amazingly, like that level of intensity sort of extended throughout the entire rest of the set. Like Nadal um, saved a break point at five all. And then Djokovic saved a set point at five six with a really, really gutsy drop shot that he hit perfectly. Um, And this set. Yeah, and the set was just so long and so physical that eventually it felt like whoever loses this set cannot possibly recover. And so at the time when Nadal did have the set point, it it felt like a match point. And in retrospect, it might not have been because it was clear in the fourth set that Djokovic had more in the tank. But at the time I was watching, um, it felt like Djokovic had to win that point, and he did. And then it went to a tiebreak when there were a couple more crazy points. Like I think at three all in the tie break uh, with Djokovic serving, Nadal was on the attack and he was totally peppering Djokovic's forehand with his backhand. Um, but then Djokovic like went behind him with, um, with like a really, really risky cross court forehand and it hit the line for a winner. Um, and it was just such a violent rally. Mm-hmm. And yeah. And the entire time just watching these two play, it's like when both are at their best or close to it, when one raises their level, it's like the other one will raise it basically as if they're fighting for their life. It's like they act as if they are going to die if they don't raise their level to meet what their opponent is mm. playing. Um, and I feel like they're the only two in a rivalry 
uh, that's active that can do this. Um, and just the level of intensity, I think, is completely unmatched. They're willing to just kick lumps out of each other in these rallies. Um, I mean, Nadal was completely physically broken by the end of this match, I think. Um, he went up 2-0 in the fourth, but the match ended with Djokovic winning six games in a row. And it and it's just amazing to watch because, um, I mean, like sort of logically as a tennis player, you would think you would have to avoid playing rallies like that, but both of them know they can't get away with playing anything below their best or um, or like not working as hard as they can in a rally. Uh, so yeah, it was the intensity levels were off the charts in that third set. It it really did feel like a throwback match to something they might have done when they were in their primes, and it just sort of felt like this unexpected gift in the twilight of the rivalry. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I I definitely agree with you. Like in the sense that like um, the the gruesome rallies, the super physical ones. The one thing that I can I keep thinking and. One of the things that was extremely vintage, it definitely felt like I was watching it like back in the the tense decade, like when uh, Djokovic couldn't really find a way to 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 actually get to Nadal, was when he he was in total control of a of a rally, and all of a sudden Nadal just pushes up like a like a passing shot that is like inch perfect through him, and the only thing that Djokovic can do is like look at his box and like raise his arms and and like what am I even supposed to do here? Like there's uh-huh. absolutely nothing. There was this one that like Nadal literally just found this backhand cross cross court passing shot. Djokovic was completely over in that in that rally. Like the cheesy thing that that everybody says like this would have been a point against ninety nine percent of the players, but not against Nadal. Like yeah. this, I feel like this would have been a point against literally everyone on at the ATP tour, past present, yep. except for Nadal. Because that one of those shots, some of those shots are just incredible. It's ridiculous, and you cannot get away from like being patient. Because if you're not, you know that you're going to be opening the door for them. So like you have yeah. to win it by actually building the point and actually throwing them off balance. And when I say throwing them off balance, it's like the rallies that they were playing, they were using like literally every inch of the court, like. Mm-hmm for the ball and for themselves at some points like nadal is just standing outside of the doubles alley and so was yeah. Djokovic, and they were trading cross courts because they knew that if they went up down the line the the other one would just like make the distance and grow go down the line while the other one was like completely off balance so it, it's the story of the match like nadal like found a lot of like important um forehands down the line because Djokovic dared to go like backhand to his forehand mm-hmm. like at, at the not so great time that again would have would have been enough against a lot of people, but Nadal is just there and waiting. Um, and if you want to talk a little bit about uh, um, tactics, Djokovic's forehand, like cross court, just like just yeah, smoothly just building up the point, like the forehand, like very spinny, like really aiming for the 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 service line where it, where it meets the the doubles alley. A lot of the times he could have easily been out, but he wasn't. It was just there. Um, and getting Nadal off balance, I feel like he was one of the massive keys for Djokovic. And trusting his forehand is not something that he's known for in his career. Even today, in today's matches against Tsitsipas, um, mm-hmm. his forehand was breaking down a little bit. So, yeah, the fact that the forehand worked so unbelievably well um, is is unreal like honestly for it was the key for Djokovic for to keep Nadal in his backhand side and not allow him that many um chances for a winner yeah I I totally agree the shot 
that he hit over and over was that forehand cross court that he would hit sort of like into the service box that would just sweep Nadal like way off the court, sliding past the doubles alley. And he was hitting it so relentlessly. And then even if Nadal got it to his backhand on the next shot, he can hit it wherever he wants. He can go cross court or he can go back to to Nadal's backhand side. So Nadal couldn't recover fully to the center um, because he was risking leaving that lane open for Djokovic to hit behind him. And Djokovic did hit behind him plenty of times. And and that strategy was just being executed with such like ruthless consistency that I actually started to feel a little bad for Nadal because it felt like torturous that he was just having to defend that corner constantly. And, and it was so impressive for Djokovic because the strategy itself is not a revelation. Like we've known that it's smart to try to pin Nadal in his backhand corner for a long time. I think we brought it up in the preview as did countless other people. Um, But like this level of execution, I don't think has ever been seen before against Nadal on Chatrier. Like the way Djokovic reproduced that cross court forehand and, um, and he didn't do it for the entire match. I thought it looks like he didn't really have a game plan in the first set. And uh, in the first half of the second, he was trying to pin Nadal in that corner, but he was doing so with pretty safe shots. I didn't think it was until late in the second or the start of the third that he really started to hook those forehands cross court at amazing angles. And he was making them so often. Mm-hmm. And it really felt like he was actually dictating play and doing so for a long period of time which is just so difficult to do against Nadal on Chatrier. I mean, there's a reason he's only ever lost three matches on that court. And Djokovic can now say he accounts for two of them. And this last one was, I think, easily takes the cake between the three of them because Nadal wasn't at his best. But for that third set, I think he was close to it. Like, he exhibited a high enough level in this match that when Djokovic won, like, I think everyone's first impression was what a match Djokovic just played and not um, Nadal was clearly off his best. And yeah. I think that's probably the only time people have thought that after Nadal's lost at the, at Roland Garros. Yeah, I agree. Especially because um, when you say like a ruthless consistency, like now that I think about it, the amount of mental effort that he must have taken Djokovic to, to pull it off because Nadal is comfortable and clear, right? I mean, obviously he's yeah. not like, he's not, so unbelievably comfortable that he 100% knows that he will win and like he wasn't he wasn't exactly like surprised by the fact that this was happening he knew that this was a possibility not that he would lose but like that Djokovic would do that because he knows how, just how uh how well Djokovic can play and just how consistently um good he can be but it's just like the the, the level that they've maintained for for a lot of this match, like, I mean, for the entire, like, middle portion of it, like, where the, 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 the third set is, that is just, it's out of this world. It's, like, it's unthinkable that you can um, maintain maintain this and not get tired and, like, not get frustrated when it doesn't work because it could have easily happened. Like, and the fact that they pulled, the, pulled this off is, is really, it's really something special. And it, Nadal definitely... Um, Especially, I, I guess I would say at the, at the third set, he definitely sensed that he wasn't really um, going to last for a fifth set, like a like a sixteen fourteen type of set. Like mm-hmm. he he knew that he doesn't have that anymore. But I feel like he all that he had, he gave in in that in that um, third set. So that's yeah. why he, he felt like he was so vintage because I feel like he was definitely trying to be um, trying to be like at his um, career one hundred percent level. Um, probably like reaching more like a 90 95 but like at the same time like um, he definitely gave it all and another point that you brought up that I think is 
fantastic is just how the drop shots Djokovic was playing. Just how insane those were. Because they were inch perfect as well. They were absolutely mm-hmm. perfect. And uh, we see time and time again. Um, I think we also discussed that in the preview that if Djokovic starts going to the drop shot like out of the blue and it doesn't really have a, a reason for it, it kind of can mean that he's just losing a little, a little bit. He's not necessarily, doesn't really know exactly where he's going. So he just tries the drop shot. This one time, like I feel like, I don't remember a drop shot that Djokovic played that, um, well, I mean, I, he definitely lost a few points here and there, but like Djokovic played so many drop shots and a lot of them were either winners or just kind of like won him the point like right away. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, I think, the key to the drop shot almost was so I think he was trying some early on and Nadal was reading them pretty well. I remember a couple yeah. Nadal got back in the first few games when of the match when he was sort of sweeping. Although the first two games were very close. But I think the key to Djokovic's drop shot working was that he actually felt very comfortable in the baseline rallies. Like with that angled forehand we talked about, he had a go-to plan that was working. And so that drop shot wasn't like a tactic he needed it was something extra so like when Nadal got pushed out to his backhand side it's like he had to worry about like is the ball going to the open court or is it going back behind me or is there a drop shot Hmm. so he had to be ready to like run to either side or run forward and Djokovic put some absolutely brutal drop shots out there at the end of the match like I think in the fourth set um there were a few points where he was just bombarding Nadal from the back and then he would put in a drop shot and Nadal was so far back he was exhausted from doing like three and three hours and 45 minutes of running um and he just like couldn't summon up the legs to get to them uh and so i think that djokovic's drop shot is really at his at its best when uh like when he's doing other things well in the baseline Mm -hmm. rallies and it just adds another layer of unpredictability to his game rather than when it's sort of a central tactic that he tries to win points with and so i think that in this match he had everything going from the back of the court and the drop shot just added another wrinkle for Nadal. Yeah, I guess you're right. Like if if he has like the foundations right and like he knows that it's working and he's comfortable. Um I guess in, in, on any surface really, not necessarily just on clay. But you could definitely feel like on that note, like a, a little bit of a parenthesis, you could definitely feel Djokovic's tenseness and like feeling that he didn't necessarily know that much if he, he would have the answer for Nadal like in the beginning of the match when he went down 5-0 in the first set. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. But uh, once he, he got his game going and he felt comfortable, everything was really just just working well for him. Like, his, even his net game was it was pretty on point. Like, I mean, um, for a lot of the times that Nadal was, like, throwing in lobs on Djokovic's, uh, on Djokovic's side when he was at the net, um, several times, like, he, we've referred to, like, the Joko's match when he just, yeah. like, plays either something, like, really terrible, which is, like, goes right straight into the net, which he did a couple times today mm-hmm. against Tsitsipas. But against Nadal, he was actually finishing the points on, on the overheads. Yeah. He was very, being very he, he was being very conservative. He was never really slam-dunking it. He was never really playing, like, Nadal level of smash, of course, or, or Federer. But he was playing them with margin and safely enough that he would win the point with it. Like, he wasn't necessarily overthinking those. And I guess it's all, all the virtue of the fact that he knew that he was good at the baseline so that he, he, if he misses there, he can still like rely on his baseline game. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was like, it almost felt like, I mean, I thought Djokovic was more comfortable in this match against Nadal at Roland Garros than he was in any other besides 2015. Um, 
And and it was amazing to see, and it's a testament to just how high his peak is, because when he has all these things working, it's just impossible to attack a weakness of his. Like, Nadal is such a good player that when Djokovic is in god mode like this, he can still attack with his forehand because it's such a good shot. But a lot of other players are just at a complete loss for ideas when Djokovic is in that mode. And I think, again, it's a testament to like what a monster Nadal is on clay that the third set even went to a tiebreak, because I think against anyone else, if Djokovic plays at that level, he wins that set by a break at least. Um, I think if he had played at that level against Tsitsipas, it could have been like a 6-2 or a 6-3. Um, and I think another thing that just boggles my mind is that Djokovic had never been able to do this before against a good version of Rafa at Roland Garros. Again, he wasn't at his best, but I think he was good. Um, and Djokovic is 34 years old. Like he, uh, he was supposed to be declining on clay, or at least he had in the past few years compared to 2015 and 2016. And then he pulls this performance out of the hat and it just makes you question like, what can't this guy do? Because he just did like the toughest thing that tennis has to offer beating it all on that court in a semifinal. Uh, or a final. He was 13-0 in both of those categories before um, he lost to Djokovic in this match. And Djokovic just just does it, like, and in four sets as well. Um, and he ended up running away with the match. It's yeah. it's incomprehensible, really. Um, I've been thinking about it for much of the last two days, and I still haven't completely sort of, like, adapted to this reality. Yeah, I feel like one of the most unbelievable things is that Djokovic outlasted Nadal like on the on the clay court as well. Like all things considered, even if like Nadal like um was like playing like any it if you just disregard everything, like Djokovic wasn't necessarily playing like his best or anything like that. Like Djokovic is just a year younger than Nadal. Like and he's yeah. his body can still maintain that level of intensity for so long. Um I don't know if Nadal has like some sort of like predisposition maybe to injury since he's been like out for so long. Maybe has um maybe his body just kind of like tended to like go down a bit earlier than Djokovic. It's also because Nadal has been playing at the highest level since he was like 18 years old. So like maybe he has a little bit more like miles on his on his legs than Djokovic because Djokovic essentially hit his you know his peak really uh only in 2010-11. So like for a bunch of his career, maybe he was he was good, but he wasn't unbelievably good, right? Like 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 Rafa and and, and Roger were at that time. Um, but yeah, like solely on the basis of age, Djokovic outlasting Nadal, like he is like a twenty five year old like dude, and Nadal is the, the age that Nadal actually is, is impressive. Like just a testament of just how incredibly fit Djokovic still is. Yeah. Um and just the fact that he takes care of his body so well that like he can play se- a season and pinpoint the places where he is actually going to give his all and his best. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Yeah, I mean the semi and the final he played in this tournament were both 4 hours and 11 minutes. The first of those matches was against the clay goat and it was extremely physical. And then the second of those matches was against someone who's over 10 years younger than him. And yet Djokovic wins both of them. And it's just insane because I think when both of them were in their primes, Nadal could probably match his level of fitness and endurance. But Djokovic has been able to extend his prime, his physical prime, um, without a severe dip much more successfully than Nadal. He's still like you feel like he can still play five hour matches, whereas Nadal can't really. Um and the fact that Djokovic can do this, like making his gumby like gets the entire way and running everything down um 
I mean, it's just insane. Like at, um, I mean, Federer was sort of the the first of the three to come through and demonstrate that you could play at a really high level um, in your mid thirties. But like, he changed his game. He started being way more aggressive. He started like hitting um, hitting his backhand more aggressively. Um, he tried. He introduced the saber. But like in general, he was just trying to end points quicker. And while Djokovic does do that with like his serve and his drop shots. Um, like tournaments like that make you feel like he doesn't really need to, you know, like he still has that, that gear where he can just grind from the baseline endlessly. And it was amazing when he could do it at 25 and it's probably even crazier that he can do it now, although probably not to the same extent. Yeah. Well, I guess uh, it's, it's probably like, it was crazy when he could do it at 25. The The reason why he, he can do it at 34 also, I feel like it's because he's so much more experienced that his grind isn't just like a mindless grind. He knows what he's doing with his shots as well. And that's uh, the fact that he can just do this lighty backhand and, uh, you know, pick where that shot is going to go with pinpoint accuracy. Like he, he pulled off a couple of winners from that, from that angle as well. And some of mm-hmm. those low-mo shots that you look at him, like the ball is barely spinning. It's just like guiding it like gently to the corner of the the court, like for a perfect winner, and that's the moment where Nadal actually starts looking at his box and goes like, "Yeah, so what now?" Like, I mean, I've done my thing, and he he's he's came come out on top. But mm-hmm. yeah, like major props to to Nadal, obviously, because after going down, like the set that he lost at the third uh, the, uh, the third set tiebreaker. That set was as good as anyone's. It could have been anyone's set. Like it was going either way. And Nadal is definitely regretting that one volley that he played. Oh, totally definitely. Um, and just like send it long um, and just kind of open up the way for Djokovic to like take the lead. Um, yeah, that was at 3 4 in the tie break. So that ended up being the decisive mini break. Exactly. So, yeah, I mean, you know, it, when a point defines an entire set, um, just like this you can essentially pinpoint where it, it turns around like essentially in that tie break that, that makes the difference between winning and losing um and Nadal is the 30 36 year old or over 35 35 yeah. 35 yeah he's turning 36 at some point soon but like whatever um you know that Nadal is still unreal he's an unreal player still like just because he lost because he didn't maybe have enough in the tank it doesn't mean that he couldn't have won this match he could have easily won that match still like i mean that that volley goes in nadal is in the for, for all i think um and then you know maybe djokovic makes another mistake maybe he just kind of like feels a little bit like um out of source because of nadal's like great play or something like this and he loses the tie break and then on we go with nadal potentially like winning the fourth set and then going on to face tsi pass in the final for a rematch of their incredible barcelona final that they played mm-hmm. um maybe a month ago so yeah i mean I mean, it's just at some point, you're just speechless about the level of those guys. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, and another thing that was interesting to me is I mean, well, so first of all, we can pinpoint parts of Nadal's game that we're not on. Like his serve, I think, was spotty Mm -hmm. throughout the match. His backhand, I think he didn't hit crisply enough to get out of ad court jail. If he had, um, or deuce court jail for him, but if he had hit it more crisply, I don't think Djokovic would have been able to have as much success with that tactic. Um, and he missed chances not only in the third set, but in the second set as well. He had two break points with Djokovic serving at 5-3 and three break points with Djokovic serving at 4-2. But again, like overall, he did play well. And in that, in that third set tie break, 
when he made the volley error, it was in the middle of a very high level tiebreak. They they played a couple more insane rallies, and I think it was just striking that even on in this tiebreak, like on Nadal's. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Turf on his favorite court. Djokovic still had that very slight edge in the big moments. Like he played those big points better at the end of the day. And it reminded me of like Wimbledon 2018, that third set tiebreak that went to 11 9, and Djokovic won that one too, saving three set points. And I mean, Djokovic's greatness is such that like it sort of doesn't matter where he's playing sometimes. Like even, even against the king of clay on Philippe Chatrier, like he can come up with shots like that and take away a tiebreak from the clay goat. And at the end of a 97-minute set, it's it's just incredible. And um, I will also say that I think no one brings out the best in Novak Djokovic like Rafa Nadal does. I think when when those two play, Djokovic is forced to be at his very best mentally and physically. And Nadal is sort of like a lens that produces like the most beautiful picture of Djokovic, I guess. Um like if you look at the tournament, Djokovic lost a tiebreak to Tsitsipas, he lost two tiebreaks to Musetti, and he lost a tiebreak to Berrettini. And yet the one tiebreak the one tiebreak he plays against Nadal, he wins, having lost all those other ones. And that is because Nadal holds him to such a high standard that Djokovic simply like can't make mistakes at times. And to his immense credit, he rises to those moments brilliantly. And when Nadal denies him margin of error, Djokovic makes his shots close to the lines anyway. Uh, it's one of my favorite rivalries ever. I think it's the best men's rivalry ever. And I think two people just being able to push each other like that is extremely, extremely rare. And so we should really cherish this while they're still playing. Yeah. I mean, if you go back to obviously first, um, I don't think I have anything to add. Like, if you're if you're listening to this, like, you know that Owen just came up with like incredible quote worthy like um, <laughs> sentences right there. Like, uh, saying nice. that Nadal is a lens through which like Djokovic is like the most uh, beautiful form. I think you can probably put that in like into a in a plate in a plaque and just like hang it on your wall because I feel like that would make everyone feel really proud about it. But yeah, <laughs> thank um, you. Yeah. Um, what else was going to say? Oh, yeah. Like in terms of Nadal, you, you mentioned Nadal's serve uh, not being exactly the, the best. Um, that's definitely something that I noticed. Um, he wasn't ex- he wasn't getting any joy in his uh, service games most of the time. Um, and uh, he was only making Djokovic work on his own service games because he was so incredibly good on returning. 
Um, and obviously his Nadal aura makes it sometimes a little bit more difficult to serve a second serve or a first. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I feel like in terms of what Nadal could have done better, um, that could have meant that, that he could have won this match. Like, is there anything that you would pinpoint? Because I've already talked about, like we both already talked about how he um, he didn't have enough in the tank. He probably mm-hmm. got a little tired earlier than Djokovic. Uh, so maybe he was physically outlasted, but then yeah. he wasn't necessarily physically outlasted for at least like three hours of that match or something like right. that. Like, right, like so, three hours, 38 um, minutes, which I think was the time it took to play the first three sets. Um like, I think they were on yeah. even terms physically. Um, and so I think based on how the fourth set went, Nadal needed to get that third set to get the two sets to one lead. And so yeah. on on the set point in that set, Djokovic had a second serve. And Nadal's first forehand after the return, I think he could have taken down the line. He didn't. And being that aggressive on a big point like that isn't always his style or isn't often his style and so i'm not surprised that he didn't do it but that might have been a good plan for him in retrospect uh i also think the second set was a really patchy set for him i think he really went off the boil at the beginning to go down 2-0 he was having trouble holding on to his serve and then he missed those five break points at the end of the set uh and if he had converted any of those it would have gotten him back on serve so i think maybe if he had played a bit better Maybe he could have gone up two sets, and from that point, I don't think Djokovic comes back to win the match. But like on the whole, I think it, I don't think it was like he blew this match in the slightest. Um, I think you can pinpoint areas where he could definitely have done better, but it wasn't like he had it wasn't like he had set point on his serve in the third set and like double vaulted or played a really passive point. Like Djokovic took this from him. Nadal did not hand it over on a silver flatter. So, like. Nadal definitely could have done better. He didn't play his best. Uh, maybe he feels like he should have won this match, but I think this isn't one that should keep him up at night. Yeah, I definitely feel you. Yeah. I mean, I guess especially when you're at a tournament where you've been so successful for so long. Um, mm-hmm. I guess Nadal, better than anyone knew that, like, I mean, sooner or later, um, he would he would face defeat. Like, I mean, he would like face defeat in the eye, look at defeat in the eye again, because mm-hmm. it's been only twice. Like the, f- the first one against Sorling, probably he was surprised a little bit by the level of Sorling play. Like 2015, um, he probably had very little expectations of actually like taking that match from Djokovic because yeah. Djokovic was definitely like in, in the best of the best, like that he's ever been. But this one time, I feel like, um, um, the one thing that he would probably have regretted was not taking that um, the third set because I feel like he mm-hmm. not necessarily regretting in that terrible way. Like you said, like he wouldn't be up at night because of that. But like he would definitely wonder. Like if I had won that that third set, I think I would have had a chance to actually close it out. Like I mean, yeah, yeah. And he he definitely didn't didn't give it away to Djokovic. He he was fighting so hard. Like otherwise, he right. wouldn't have had that set point. Like I mean, I, I, he wouldn't have broken Djokovic um, when he was serving for the set. And yeah. you know, almost broke him back. Like I mean, to take the to take like, um, I think it would be like four games in a row to end that third set. Like, but yeah, like, yeah, it would have been because Djokovic led yeah. five three. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, like he 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 almost did the Nadal thing, the classic Nadal thing to do, which would be yeah. like coming back from behind and like roaring through it and just winning. And it's something that Federer is very familiar with, by the way, at Roland Garros. Um, leading and then Nadal just Nadal just like hitting another gear and just like running away with points in the games. So um, for Djokovic to keep his he- his head held up high and and winning is 
um, a testament to both like how um, they raise each other's level, like you said, and also how 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 Djokovic had to like keep his eyes wide open no matter what point of the match he was playing. So like yeah, even at the end, like um, when Djokovic like um, got into a double break to actually like beat Nadal, I think it was on his own serve that he broke Nadal to win the match. Um, yep. So, I mean, suppose Nadal holds that game at five. Five two, right? It's like I mean, Djokovic has only one break and he has to serve for the match, and he already failed to do that in the set prior, right? So I mean, Djokovic wouldn't be just like wandering around, like saying like, "Oh yeah, it's over. I, I got Nadal on the ropes right right now." Like I mean, it's definitely yeah. respect, like total total respect from Djokovic towards Nadal uh, that he needed to take it. He he wouldn't he wouldn't have to he couldn't wait for Nadal to give it. He would have to take it. So yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, it'll be cold comfort for Nadal, but for Djokovic to win this match, I think he may have played his best clay court match ever. At least this was the most impressed with Djokovic I have ever been while watching him play on clay. And I know there's a lot of hyperbole. Like, I mean, a lot of people said that this was the greatest match of all time, uh, including tennis legend Chris Everett. And I think that's it's pretty clear to most people who saw the match that that is an extreme exaggeration but i feel comfortable saying like that is the best i've ever seen djokovic play on clay um i mean maybe like you could put the 2011 madrid and rome finals above it but i think like it is certainly up there at the very top of what he's achieved on the dirt and so um so yeah i think it was amazing that he was able to achieve that it was great to see that rafa forced him to do that and I think that it felt like a fitting end to Rafa's latest winning streak at Roland Garros because he was the, he had won the last four before this. And when he lost to Soderling in 2009, I think, no disrespect to Soderling, who played a great match, but I think Joe, uh, sorry, Nadal's knees had been pretty banged up for a lot of that year. Yeah. And he was going through some mental difficulties as well, and it ended up being relatively straightforward. And then in 2015, it was Djokovic's best year, Nadal's worst year, and the result in that one just felt pretty inevitable um especially once Djokovic went up 4-0 in the first but in this one like it actually felt like he was dethroned and that he had to be dragged like kicking and screaming off um off his throne and and like if Nadal is going to go down I feel like that is like the best possible way to see it happen at Roland Garros uh like his greatest rival playing one of the best matches of his life um it just felt right so um so I was on the whole I think it was a very sort of emotional experience to see all of that like those two playing tennis i didn't know they still had in them uh djokovic just like rising to new heights um and nadal not going down without a massive fight yeah i mean in, in, when it comes down to like greatest matches of all time like we i'm 100 percent sure we all just uh well not we all but like a lot of us are just total um pray for a recency bias and right when you right. see a match like this and it's it's a level that it doesn't get reproduced like super super often, even between those those three guys. Like I mean, you you've seen the couple matches between them that were just pretty straightforward. Like the yeah. very one at 2015, which was just kind of, I mean, you could probably find first round matches that were better than that one. Like to be fair, um, in terms of like competitiveness, but um, it it one of the things that uh, why did I forget what I was going to say? I'm gonna cut this off. All right, just yeah. so that I'm gonna see. <laughs> uh, yeah, nice. yeah. Um, 
Oh, I was going to say, yeah, I mean, I, although I do think that that recency bias can be fairly easy to avoid. Like, I think in this case, the third set was amazing. Like, yeah. it's, it's tough to remember the last time we saw a set that good. But I think it's also very easy to remember that, like, the fourth set was lopsided. The first set was lopsided. And Nadal went away for big parts of the second set. Mm-hmm. And as good as that third set was, one outstanding set doesn't make a great match. Yeah. Like a bunch of outstanding sets make a great match. Like the 2009 Australian Open semifinal between Nadal and Fernando Verdasco, the GOAT. Um, and so I think like as as exciting as it is to sort of buy into a recent match as like being the greatest of all time, it was quite easy to avoid in this case. Yeah. Um, I mean, to be fair, like I think I'm remembering what I wanted to say in the in the first place is that like... Oh, great, yeah. While this, uh, this is a great match to remember, um, it, it definitely isn't the greatest of all time. Like it, it has a lot of good um, things around it, good context that is good to remember. It definitely makes for a very good story. It, make, it makes for good history as well for in tennis. Like it, it's definitely a historic match, but it's it's as historic as when Nadal beat Federer in Wimbledon in 2008. And that match was most likely better than this one that we, that we watched. Yeah. Yeah. The the quality of that one was a lot better. Yeah. So yeah, I would definitely, even, even you, I guess you'd have to agree like uh, the, the 2008 final in the Federer played Nadal Uh is miles ahead of this one. Oh yeah. 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 um, Don't don't get me wrong. Like I think that match was amazing. I just don't think it was the best ever. Like like a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, 2012, like AO, like, I mean, Nadal Djokovic was a much better match than this one as well. It, it uh, was, yeah. And even if even if you take like physicality, the 2012 one is definitely the one that they displayed, like the most physical um, that they could ever possibly have been on a yeah. Grand Slam. Probably they, like 2009 Madrid was a, a thing of beauty as well, but uh Mm-hmm. Yeah, like this this one match, um, it enters definitely as, as one of the most important matches, I guess, like that has ever took place uh, in in tennis, or at least in his recent history history in tennis. Yeah, um, and it's honestly really good to open up like a a new um, a new tennis decade with that. So I feel like it's going to be really interesting. And by the way, yeah. I feel like if Nadal had lost to Tsitsipas in the final, which I think was probably going to be a little bit unlikely as as well as Tsitsipas played against Djokovic in the first two sets. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it would have been a, an interesting way to end as well because Tsitsipas has been, have been like sort of like knocking on the door, a bit like team, but he's younger. Uh, so it, it would definitely feel like a, a a new wave of tennis players coming in to take their place. But yeah. it definitely feels just as good to see Djokovic doing it because... Um, it's his greatest rival, like to go down like this like, to, against his greatest rival. I think it's definitely um, another great chapter in the history of those those two together. Yeah, like, no question. And I agree with you about the changing of the guard. Like nothing would have screamed changing of the guard more than Nadal losing to a young player in a Roland Garros final. But it didn't happen. Um, Djokovic, who's been around for ages, beat him instead and then beat the young guy as well. Um, <laughs> but... I mean, like, I, I have no issues with that whatsoever. It was great tennis in the semifinal. There's some good tennis in the final, too. Um, but, like, the changing of the guard will come. It's a question of when, not if. Um, like, players don't play forever. And so as long as greats like this are still around and producing tennis like this, I'm I'm here for it. Yeah. And to be fair, I don't think we really, really need, like, a Djokovic losing to Daniel Medvedev in an Australian Open 
or um, whatever, Roger Federer losing to whoever is good on grass, like Matteo Berrettini in the final of Wimbledon, <laughs> and Nadal losing to Tsitsipas or team on on a final of Roland Garros. We don't actually need that to happen. Right. Um, we are, we are definitely going to see great players in the future in this decade. Like in the next ten years, there will be amazing um, players winning amazing matches and winning t- tons of tournaments and titles and big titles. Um, so I guess like we don't we don't have to close any chapter in, in tennis history. Like especially the golden era, like this. Like the we don't we don't need a moment like this. Like you know they they will retire, they will get old, and they won't be able to play anymore, whether they like it or not. Like Federer is definitely on the brink of like retirement at this point in his yep. career. Um, we're gonna talk a bit about him like later in this podcast since he's playing Holly this week, I believe. Um, and Wimbledon is coming up, but like. I mean, since we added in Roland Garros, like I feel like it's it's very fitting that uh, that uh, Djokovic beats Nadal in a sincerely really good match, um, and then goes on to win the title. It's definitely the the closing of the tournament that Djokovic wanted, um, especially after he saw Nadal in his draw. He definitely he definitely thought like I'm definitely I'm I'm 100 going to have to play Nadal um, yeah. to win this title, even before he saw like he was in the semis. And then when he saw his semis, it was like, oh yeah, now my chances, the chances I'm playing Nadal in the uh, in the uh, are even higher than if we were to meet in the final. So he definitely thought, well, I'm gonna have to beat him in the semis and have enough to win in the final again. And by the way, that's bring that brings up a point that I'm I'm sure you would like to talk about, mm-hmm. which is the significance of Djokovic beating Nadal in the semifinal being just as good or just slightly less good than him actually going on to win the title. You, uh-huh. have, a, you have a really telling tweet, tweet about that. Yeah. Um, yeah, th- this, I think, seems like an unpopular opinion when I shared it. But like my feeling was, after what Djokovic did to beat Nadal, I, like, I feel like if you still think he has anything to prove on clay, like, I don't really know what to tell you. So all the people who were saying... Like, he still needs to win the final to, like, cement this. I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, like, he just beat the clay goat. Like, if you think he needs a second title to, like, cement that he beat the clay goat, like, that just doesn't make any sense to me because, you know, like, matches happen independent of other matches and, like, it might be part of a tournament. But I think that that match was extremely memorable, whether it produced the winner of the tournament or not. And so my feeling was that as soon as he won that match against Rafa, Roland Garros is now sort of as valuable to him as just like another number in the slam count as it would have been for the double career Grand Slam. And he ended up getting it anyway, so um, so I don't really need to argue about this, but I felt that with Djokovic's credentials on clay, like he already has a title. I think in 2015, when he beat Nadal and didn't convert it into the title, it was fine to sort of look at that win with less value. But now that he already has one, he's been to the final a bunch of other times. He had those seven wins against Rafa on clay before this one. And then when he added that eighth, which was like the best that what most people said, I think was the best performance anyone had put up against Nadal on Philippe Chatrier. I mean, if he doesn't win his next match after that, and that makes people ignore what he did to win that match, I just think that's a huge mistake. So, um, so yeah, it was my feeling that he sort of did what he, not what he needed to do, but like he got from Roland Garros, like most of what he could get by winning that semi, even before he won the title. Yeah, I feel like I, I tend to agree mostly with that. Uh, 
I would definitely have to say that like uh, not winning the title afterwards would definitely leave doubts here and there because um, even though like Nadal has because Nadal is such a particular case at Roland Garros having yeah. won so much and lost so little that um, it's it's hard to gauge like uh, what a win against Nadal actually means on that court but um, not winning against Tsitsipas right after it would definitely feel like um, anticlimactic for Djokovic it, it uh, would and, yeah so yeah like uh, it would definitely feel like I have to go through all this trouble like I can beat Nadal but I cannot beat the next one it, right. it would feel like um, it would just feel wrong, and it would it would definitely not feel like negating it. But you, he would definitely have to come to terms that he doesn't negate it if he didn't come up to win the title right afterwards. Yeah, I, I mean, don't get me wrong. I think Djokovic would have been devastated. This is just Absolutely, from yeah. my perspective as a viewer. I think he would have been like again devastated if he hadn't like won the next match. After I think a lot of casual fans mm-hmm. would have like not even noticed the tournament if he hadn't won the final they just would have seen 18 instead of 19 and thought like oh okay like none of the big three won that tournament but like just strictly from my perspective i feel like if he came away from this tournament without winning it like if he had lost to Pass, i would have remembered it for him beating nadal more than anything else and i think it would have hurt him most because he stayed on 18 not because he didn't get the double career grand slam mm, yeah and now here's a question that I think is going to be probably the toughest one of this, this episode. Okay. Is that, uh, would you uh, place Djokovic as the second best clay court player ever? After Yes, uh, absolutely. Oh, wait, ever, actually. Um, I thought you were going to say in this of generation. This era, and, um, and, and something I was going to say was, I think a nice side effect of all of this is, I think there's been a bit of deba- a, bit, a debate over like who's a better clay quarter, Federer or Djokovic. And I thought it was always pretty clearly Djokovic. Um, and so I think that this tournament is going to help put that debate, which I think is silly to bed. Uh, I don't think you can argue that Djokovic isn't the second best of this era behind Nadal. But if we're talking about ever uh, on the ATP side, I mean, I feel like you can't put Djokovic above Borg because he won six of them. Um, hmm. I think like that 6-2 title differential is just too big. I think like it, you, you cannot argue that uh Djokovic faced way tougher competition because he had Nadal blocking him almost every step of the way when he tried to win Roland Garros uh while Borg had no one like that he was the Nadal of his time albeit a less dominant one so like I think if this is sort of a contradictory answer but like if you brought both of them together in a match like at their best I might say that Djokovic would win but I think his accomplishments on clay um trail Borgs by enough that I think Borg had a better career on clay um, and should go down as the better clay court player. Yeah, I think I agree. Um, I think I agree more with that than the fact that Djokovic is a better clay court player than Federer. Now that I don't think mm-hmm. Federer is, um, is better than Djokovic on clay, but I do think that um, Federer is an insanely good clay court player, more than people tend to he give is. him credit yeah. for. Um, and if he, even if he goes down like within the big three as the third best clay court player of the big three, I think it does. It, it's not by very very much um, to Djokovic because the one thing that um, it makes a lot of sense to talk about, like when we we, we see Federer and Nadal's rivalry, is really just the matchup, which is um, really uh, not favorable for Federer, and it's not because he's left-handed or anything like that. It's just because right. of the game styles that Nadal bring. 
uh, or really just brought, like when he was starting, were kind of revolutionary to the game. And Federer yeah. necessarily, didn't necessarily learn how to deal with it, like in time, um, when, when he, until he was too old for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, but I feel like um, on any other era, like if if even if it were just like no Nadal and Federer and Djokovic, I feel like they would have split a few titles of Roland Garros between them. Oh, oh definitely. Yeah, yeah. I think maybe like, Djokovic would. I feel like maybe like a four or three to Djokovic's favor. But yeah, or, or like a five four or a six five yeah, or something. Yeah. And um, and I'm not trying to use this as an opportunity to dish on Federer or anything yeah. like that. But I do think that we can't chalk up. Um, him only having one Roland Garros title strictly to the bad matchup with Nadal, because I think as Djokovic uh-huh. demonstrated, like, I, I mean, so Federer has a great forehand, right? Like, we saw what Djokovic did with putting Nadal in backhand jail. Like, in theory, Federer could have done that, right? Like, his forehand yeah. is better than Djokovic's, and it's going to be easier for Nadal to get out because Federer has a one-handed backhand, so if he gets a backhand down the line, uh, it's going to be easier to escape that backhand jail. But, like, Federer didn't commit to that tactic at any point when he played in Nadal at Roland Garros mm-hmm. and he had a bunch of chances. Um, and so I do think it can't, you can't solely attribute his, uh, yeah. the fact that he has won Roland Garros title to a bad matchup, but um, that's sort of neither here nor there. Uh, we don't need exactly. to run too far away from this. Yeah. No. Yeah. I, I totally agree. I feel like um, in terms of tactics, Federer like messed up a bit on like choosing like where to, to play his shots. Maybe it was a little bit of pride involved. Like maybe he definitely thought he could shut, he could, um, um, hit through Nadal and make more winners than he um, would realistically have been able to. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like I, I, I totally agree with you on that one. Like it's not necessarily just a matchup thing, especially because Rome 2006 is one of the best clay court matches ever. Yeah. And Federer very nearly won that one um, with a much worse backhand than he has uh, than he had like back in like 1718. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah. Albeit Nadal also had like a not so great backhand back in the day, uh-huh. but like uh, you know, Nadal is already Nadal. So yeah. um it, it's a yeah, like in, in terms of that, yeah, I definitely have to agree. Um mm-hmm. the gap is kind of widening between Djokovic and the other two, and most especially Federer. Yeah, um absolutely. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, like uh go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, like, we might want to save this for after we talk about the final, but it feels like we're sort of approaching that topic. Like, do we want to talk about goats a little bit? Or, um, well, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep this in the episode, so I'm gonna say let's uh, record this for the next one. All right. And good. do you have anything else to add for uh, the semifinal? Any concluding thoughts on the semifinal between Djokovic and Dal? I mean, just a couple of statistical things. This brings the head-to-head in majors for Nadal and Djokovic to uh, 9-7 now in favor of Nadal. Nadal could have added a 10th win uh, by winning. Uh, the overall head-to-head, Djokovic has maintained his lead. It's now 30-28. He is the first and only man to get 30 wins over Rafa Nadal. No one else has as many as 20. Uh, the next most is Federer with 16 wins, so Djokovic could feasibly finish his career with more than twice as many wins over Nadal as Federer has, which is just astonishing. Um, and yeah, just like having 30 wins over Nadal, eight of which are on clay, uh, boggles the mind. I think it's absolutely insane. Um, and that's up there with the most impressive things that Djokovic has accomplished in his career. Um, this is... Another major secured by the big three. Uh, It's the second in a row for Djokovic this year, and he now has a look at the Grand Slam because um, 
he's going to be the favorite at Wimbledon. And if he's fit, he should be the favorite at the U.S. Open as well, assuming his game hasn't fallen off a cliff or anything at that point. Um, And the fact that he could do all of this as a 34-year-old is just insane. And, I mean, he, he just finds a way to keep climbing. He has his eyes dead set on these major records um and he's just going to keep chasing them down and he is even as old as he is and how far past his prime he is and he, he's doing a magnificent job so congrats to him on this win over it all because it was incredible yeah i guess I, I don't have much to add to to that one as well uh, i think you you really said it all i think um if if djokovic's career would were to to end right now it would be on probably the the best place that he, he could ever imagine to beating Nadal like in a good match at Roland Garros and going on to win the title and yeah. finishing with a double career Grand Slam he definitely wants more and uh, one has to wonder whether he um, is truly eyeing the um, ear Grand Slam the calendar Grand Slam um, I, I think Marion Vita said that like he is that like that's the goal if he stays healthy man that's that's pretty intense and pretty insane to think about like I think this definitely would cement him as the greatest player of all time. And that's definitely something that I want to touch upon, like, um, uh, because I want to talk about definitions as well. Like I feel like, um, the way that that we, um, talk about greatest of all time doesn't have to mean exactly, um, the most, um, the best player, the best tennis player of all time, but definitely like, um, and, Obviously, it's like really right there, but like I'm gonna save this off for later. Um, mm-hmm. The definition of goat is important in this debate. Yeah, um, th- this will keep our listeners um, going until the end of the episode. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, like uh, we'll 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 touch up on that later. And for now, we're just gonna end this episode. Thank you so much for listening. I really do hope that you guys all enjoy enjoyed Rolling Girls as much as we did. Um, we, I was pretty much on the edge of my seat um, from Friday until Sunday, and um, I had to kind of like bite my tongue when I said that Djokovic already had 19 slams because he hadn't played the final yet against Tsitsipas. So many mm-hmm. times I almost tweeted something and I was like, oh no, that's right. He doesn't, he didn't. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it really did feel like a final, like the night before um, the final, which was today, uh, we're recording uh, the day of the Djokovic Tsitsipas final. Yeah. I had to remind myself that the tournament was not over yet because that, that semifinal was so cathartic and long and it felt like a final, um, yeah. but it wasn't. Yeah. So yeah, we just had to wait a little bit longer and now we can finally say Djokovic has 19 Grand Slams and is a double career Grand Slam winner. Um, and yeah, I, again, hope you enjoyed it. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, thanks Owen for being here. Uh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Thanks for TNNS to keeping our podcast in their app as well. Um, go download it. I actually followed entire Roland Garros through this app um, because I think it's great. So yeah. Yeah. And, and I'll just add if you missed the semifinal, please try to watch highlights some of the best points are in there um like it was it was really great so make yeah. sure you at least catch part of it yeah make sure you go over to the Roland Garros youtube page they have like, yeah they, they, have they like posted six long. minute highlights they yeah. outdid themselves yeah <laughs> that's true it was like probably one yeah. of the longest ones they ever yeah I, I mean they, they did have the point of the match in there which was good um yeah. so I, I can forgive them for the six minutes but yeah <laughs> yeah that's a good final thoughts on that one like a little bit of a uh, roasting Roland Garros Oh my Definitely god! We, we could make an episode just roasting them for their unforced errors this tournament, but oh, uh, that, that'll have to wait. Yeah, I probably won't won't be in this one, but that's fine. Uh, oh no, no. I, I was joking. I was just saying, like in theory, we could. Yeah, yeah. In any case, uh, let us know if you want us uh, to make a podcast about unforced errors of rolling arrows in the <laughs> in, in the 
in our tweet, which is at tennis and bagels. You can tweet at Owen and make sure that you disagree with him with the uh, his opinion on Djokovic beating the Dallas semifinal at tennis nation on Twitter. I'm at Rollenberg Andre and Vansh was not here. Um, but has been kept keep, kept in uh, contact with us via our chat and sharing crap ton of good content with us. It's at VarnishB2K. Just go follow him and like his stuff. It's really great too. Um, and yeah, well, see you in the next episode, which we're about to record. So yeah, <laughs> see you later. Bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.